Hi, it's Gabby Reese, and this podcast is powered by Laird Superfood. It was created in our kitchen by my husband, big wave surfer Laird Hamilton, and it all started with a simple idea. What began as Laird's secret for long-lasting energy on the waves is now Laird Superfood, offering a full range of delicious plant-based creamers, coffee, greens, and more. Visit LairdSuperfood.com and use the code GABBY2024 and save 20% on your first order. Are you ready to move your career forward? Make your comeback with Purdue Global and get college credit for your work, school, life, or military experiences. With these credits, you may have already completed up to 75% of your undergraduate degree. You've worked hard to get where you are. It's time to get the recognition you deserve and earn a degree you'll be proud of, one that employers will trust and respect. When you take the next step in your life and career, make it count with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. The Nazi V2 was a rocket-powered bomb traveling faster than the speed of sound. You couldn't hear it coming. A technological miracle, but a military and economic disaster for Nazi Germany. How did the V2 come into existence, and why were so many of the people it hurt not the people you might expect? Join me, Tim Harford, host of Cautionary Tales, for my gripping mini-series on the V2 rocket, available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to The Good Stuff. I'm Jacob Schick, and I'm joined by my co-host and wife, Ashley Schick. Jake is a third-generation combat Marine, and I'm a Gold Star granddaughter. We work together to serve military, veterans, first responders, frontline healthcare workers, and their families with mental and emotional wellness through traditional and non-traditional therapy at One Tribe Foundation. We believe everyone has a story to tell, not only about the peaks, but also the valleys they've been through to get them to where they are today. Each week, we invite a guest to tell us their story, to share with us the lessons they've learned that shaped who they are and what they're doing to pay it forward and give back. Our mission with this show is to dig deep into our guests' journey so that we can celebrate the hope and inspiration their story has to offer. We're thrilled you're joining us. Again, welcome to the good stuff. Today, our guest is Congressional Medal of Honor recipient Florent Groberg. This is a story about patriotism. He's here to tell us about his childhood in France, his family history in Algeria, moving to Chicago as a young kid, and eventually becoming a United States citizen. His love of country led him to joining the Army after 9-11. This episode is important to us because we want people to understand that the Medal of Honor recipients are real people also. He's held in high regard around the world because of that medal. But today we talk to him about who he really is, his life now as a husband and father, the eight seconds of action that changed his life, and what was going through his mind when President Obama put that medal around his neck. We are so glad he's joining us today, and you will be too once you hear this interview. This is an intimate conversation amongst friends, and a swear word or two might be included. We both fought and bled for the right to say whatever the hell we want, so deal with it. Fact. Florent Groberg, so great to have you here on The Good Stuff. We have tried many times to get you here, and you canceled twice for the two most legitimate reasons ever, a dinner at the White House and having your first child. Yeah. So welcome to The I Good mean, Stuff. I mean, one of those is the most legitimate reasons ever. <laughs> it was a good dinner. 
<laughs> was it? Good, because I was going to ask, like, is it everything that you think it would be, like first class everything, and is the furniture comfortable? Is it, like, warm and inviting? So I went to the state dinner in December between, obviously, this current administration, Biden, and President Macron. I'm French background, so yeah, that's part of the reason why I was invited. And other than the dinner being two and a half hours late, literally. Ooh. Really? Yeah, yeah. We didn't start eating around until 10, 10, 15 p.m. Oh. The reason that happened is because Biden and Macron wanted to shake everyone and take a picture with every single wow. guest. And all the BS, not, not BS, but the crap that Biden takes about being old, he is old. I was really surprised that he stood for three plus hours in the same spot and shook everyone's hand and like took pictures. You know what I mean? Because you gotta I, admire that. I, I I now at 40, sure as heck I'm not doing that. <laughs> oh, <laughs> no. I was like, all right, or we're gonna go a hell of a lot faster. Yeah, than that. Right. yeah. But going back, I was born in France and my mom is my aunt. So the woman that raised me that I called mom is my aunt. Her sister had me, I think she had a fun night or something and things that, you know, did not work out the way she planned it. But the world was blessed with you. Shit, I got lucky, right? (laughs) Uh, So my mom adopted me and, you know, for the first three years, it was just her and I. We lived in the outskirts of Paris. She gets so mad at me when I said ghetto. You know, we live in a ghetto. I told her, like, the French newspapers said that. Literally, after I received the Medal of Honor, one of the headlines was from the ghetto of Paris to the White House. Wow. Right? I was like, that's what they call it. I don't, I don't know how you see it, right? So don't blame me for this. But it's true. You you take a, you know, we did a Google Earth thing. Mm-hmm. And you go to my neighborhood and you kind of look at the buildings. And it's one of those buildings with like steel doors and bars on windows and stuff. You're kind of like, eh, this fits the, yeah, yeah. the demographics right there. But I loved it. You know, that was my world. You don't know any better when you're a kid. You know, that's yeah. what you grew up in. Luckily, she met this guy named Larry, who my stepfather now my adopted father, and he was there on business and they kind of hit it off. And over the next six, seven years, they dated, right? And he was in my life and he was amazing, right? From Gary, Indiana, born and raised, you know, (laughs) raised in Gary, lived in Chicago. And one day when I was about 10, seven years in, he asked my mom if she was willing to, well, marry him, but also move to the States. And so they had to convince me and he literally convinced me, he's so smart. He got me a Nintendo, and I was playing Mike Tyson Punch Out. Best, you know, one of the best, one Nintendo of the best games, games of all time. Yeah, and he came into my room. I was playing that game, and he asked, "Hey Flo, do you like McDonald's? You want to eat McDonald's?" I said, "Yeah." <laughs> he's like, "Also, would you like to meet Michael Jordan?" <gasps> Michael Jordan, you know, because I mean, I wasn't even a basketball player, but everyone knew Michael Everybody. Jordan. Right. The whole world right. Right. knew Michael Jordan. And you know, this is the '90s, early '90s. Oh, and so I, that's oh, glory days. Yeah, yeah, that was glory days. This yeah. is like 1993. Yeah. Right? Like, this dude is just won his first repeat, right? And yeah, I'd love to meet Michael Jordan. He's like, well, if we move to the States, McDonald's is the headquarters over there. Michael Jordan lives in my city. I said, okay, sounds good. Just like that. That was the end. He <laughs> ran with it, and we were gone. We were gone three weeks later. Gone. So, like, I tell people I lost my allegiance to my country, my family, my friends, my school, my sports, everything about me. My whole identity was just sold for McDonald's and Michael Jordan. 
That's By the way, there's McDonald's in France. Just want to bring yeah, that out there. Yeah. It's really good yeah, too. Yeah, it's a Mickey so D's and MJ. Two of the biggest franchises ever. Right. Right. And so, <laughs> yeah, I should go work for McDonald's and just be like, this is what a great story. Yeah, I should I be mean, a spokesperson. Not yeah. only that, yeah. I would like McDonald's and the Michael Jordan to take note that not just any dude. Yeah. But a Medal of Honor recipient, those aren't just handed out. It's not going to work with Michael. So President Bush put me in one of his portrait books. Yeah. You yeah. Know? And so I'm in there. I'm in his museum. He paid me. He put me in his museum. And in the book, he says that he's going to figure out a way to contact Michael Jordan. <laughs> and it has not happened. So you moved to Chicago yeah. at age 11. Yeah. Tell us about that. What so, was that like? Culture shock? Shot yeah. Down. 100% culture shock. Moving to Chicago in 1994 was a complete culture shock. Going from the city to the suburbs, not speaking the language. Did you speak any English when you moved not over? Not really. I mean, they, put, they gave me a couple of courses before, but like, you know, just like you take Spanish in school a little bit. Very, and very broken. So like, totally not my priority at the yeah, time. Yeah. And I came here and it was just so different. Right? Everything was bigger, wider, longer. I mean, I don't know how else to describe it. I remember being in this townhome that he lived in and we're there. I walked outside. And I couldn't see people, buses, you know, metro, nothing. It's just houses and quiet. I remember thinking, like, this is creepy. <laughs> I want to be in a city. But then it was also peaceful. It was new, so everything was just kind of cool, kind of like, wow, like, all right, let me just explore this. But one of the things that got me super fired up was when I saw one of those uh, yellow school buses. Because I'd never seen one in my life before. You know, and I've been, I've visited the United States a few times, you know, usually in a city and, and for like a week or two, right, with him. But now here I was, and that's where I lived, and I knew that. And I saw one of his buses drive by. The only time I've ever seen those buses was in movies, with TV shows, wow. Roseanne and things like that, right? Yeah. You know, Cosby show yeah. and the movies that we watched. And I was like, oh my God, this is so cool. I got super excited. <laughs> like my dad's just like, this kid's weird. Because I was like, I want to be one of those things one day. Like everyone's trying to avoid the bus. I want to get in the bus, right? right? <laughs> I just thought that was so cool. And then the people, right? It was hard to communicate, but as kids, you don't need words. You just need action. Sports was an easy way. I was a really good soccer player mm. and I got to play with some really good soccer players around. And so that, that created a bond, some nice. bonding and then obviously in track. But we lived in Chicago for a little bit and moved to DC. I went to the French International School. So that was still everyday French thought with a lot of emphasis on English, obviously. That got kicked out of that school in eighth grade. Hold on. What happened? I had a racist teacher, you know, and so my father would help me with my English, you know, homework and I wrote an essay and, you know, he would look at it and, but I wrote it and he would just give me advice and like, well, you might want to change this tone. You might want to go through your grammar. So he would help me. But my uncle had just been killed in North Africa right before that. Mm in Algeria, fighting the GIA, yeah. terrorist organization called yeah. the GIA, predecessor to Al-Qaeda. Yeah. And my uncle was a preacher of the Muslim faith. He was an imam. And when the GIA came in with Sharia law in a westernized Muslim country, he decided to that they were perverting his book and his religion and his beliefs. So he went and joined the army. He went in special operations there. Actually got to come to the United States and be trained with some exchange oh, program wow. right up there and at Bragg now, Liberty. And he went back and fought for years. In February of 1996, during a ceasefire to observe Ramadan, of all things, his unit was no. ambushed. He was shot, beheaded, dismembered, put in a box, sent to my grandfather. And my grandfather is was a war hero in Algeria, French Andochine, 
prisoner wow. of war for three years. And then one of the catalysts for the Algerian independence against the French. So he was really well known. So they killed his son and then obviously did that to his body and then sent it to him as a message. It only motivated more of my uncles to join the army at that point. Just like terrorism never works. It just motivates the next generation to fight against that. Yeah. So that just happened. And you're and eighth grade. Seventh grade. I okay, was going yeah. to tenth grade. Okay, Se- yeah. Seventh grade. And my uncle had just been killed. And this guy gives me a zero on my paper. And he said I cheated. A zero? Yeah, yeah. He said that zero. He said I cheated. And I said, I don't know how I cheat, but how you cheat on this, right? And he said, oh, all your Arabs are just the same. Oh. So I took a, remember those like desk chairs connected to each yeah, other? Yeah, yeah. I took one of those, lifted it, and I threw it at him. Missed him, obviously. First of all, I was scrawny and small, and I took all my strength in the world to pick <laughs> that thing up. And I threw it. And went like, oh, foot. But that's the thought that that'll counts. get you kicked out. Yeah, I got kicked out. But my mom was like, that sounds great. Kick my son out. But let me go out there and tell all the diplomats around that this is a racist school. Yeah. The ones that put a hell of a lot of money that, you know, you charge a ton of money into. You I was know, about to say that probably wasn't cheap. No, it wasn't cheap. And my dad moving here, he was, you know, I went from being super poor and nothing to yeah. like living a, a normal life. And my dad investing quite a bit of money in my education because I didn't speak English, right? Right. So anyway, I took the ESOL test after that, English as a second language, and I went to Tilden Middle School, American school. And I remember being in school and not speaking the language. So I had English. I didn't have English. I had ESOL. To this day, I'm trying to figure out how I made it through class. So English, that was my ESOL. So I'm there with a bunch of like people like me, Hispanic, French, African. All like, over. You know, yeah. this is like, yeah, it's actually a good number. But like history, science, math, Everything else, it was in English, like Oof. with everybody. That probably didn't make it a challenge at all. The thing is, <laughs> I think that helped. Really? Yeah, because by the time I was in regular English freshman year, mm-hmm. I was in honors English sophomore year, and I was in AP English junior year. Wow. wow. And I think being forced to learn yep. in that element, I think that helped me. I don't know how I made it through, to be honest with you. Like, maybe like they were nice to me or something, but the only class I felt really comfortable in was in Spanish. Because I spoke Spanish too at the time. Because I lived in Spain for a little bit of period of time. So like, I was like, screw all of you. I can speak this language, right? Yeah. So me and the other like Hispanic dudes were like, let's go. That led into going into high school, sports, and then college. And But when 9-11 happened, and I think this is like a kind of, to conclude this piece, this whole transition, I became naturalized as a 17-year-old, right? Mm-hmm. So my dad officially adopted me. Nice. So I became his son on paper and everything. And that made me American right away because mm-hmm. I was a minor. And so in February 2001, I became a U.S. citizen. And I remember not truly understanding that moment, but I was just being happy. I'm like one of you guys now, I'm American, officially. But when you fast forward seven months later and 9-11 happens, and now you do the connecting dots in my own mind, which is, these individuals are the same people that killed my uncle. Yep. Right. So like, I felt like terrorism was following me. And now they attacked my mom's like side of the house, right? And now they're attacking my new, newly adopted country. So as an American, I felt that it was my responsibility to now join the military, but also felt that it was very personal. And so- I mean, how could you not at yeah. that point, especially- I tell people I had the easiest four years in college because I didn't really care what I was studying because I knew exactly what I was going to do after. Because 9-11 happened when I was in the school and I wanted to quit. 
And he asked me one single question. He said, what's the one thing I asked of you when I gave you my name? I obviously had no idea what he's talking about. So he reminded, he reminded me, he said, when a Groberg starts something, he or she finishes it. Because if they quit when things are get tough, they will always find an excuse to quit everything else that they start. That could be a job, a family, you know, relationships or whatever it is. So it's like the hard thing for you to do is get your education right now. And he said something really valuable after that. He's like, as we go to war into this, this is not going to be a two-month, three-month thing. This is going to be a long thing. Because his background was in communications for Motorola. And he traveled seven months out of the year. We didn't see him. Wow. He was always on the road because he would go do these big deals. Well, he's former army veteran, Vietnam, 100% was in a capacity working with the agency. Yeah. And we can get into, that's the fun stuff. And now we have all the pictures and stuff. He golfed with Ben Laden's father. He knew the King of Morocco and stuff because he was selling them radio technologies on stuff all around the Middle East and Asia and South America. And so he had all these wow. access points. He lived this, I was so lucky, like he, he raised me. And he had all this understanding of like culture and stuff. And so he told me like, this is something that's been brewing for a long time and this yeah. is not going to end overnight. He so knew. like, you're going to, you're going to have your opportunity to play in this game. And so finish school. And I said, all right. I was pissed, but of course, know, well, what sound advice. Like, he's complete opposite of me. First of all, he's blonde and green eyes. <laughs> so really a lot of questions growing up about like, that's your dad. Right. Okay. Right. Milkman, where you at? You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That, and Aww. that's, I mean, seeing is believing, you know? I mean, that's it's one of those things. Hell yeah. We both have great dads, too. Yeah, and you know what, man? You probably, you know this, you didn't have a better guy to mentally prepare you for all of it. And he and clearly knew what he was talking about. Had way more of a friggin' understanding than general yeah. population, you know. Watching the Nine news. to five yeah. dad. This is the stories he tells me. I won't go too deep, but I'll give you just sort of a synopsis. We were sitting at, at the table, him and I just chatting, and I'll be like, all right, so like, how was your trip? He'll say, it was good. This time was a lot better than last time. I said, he went to Zambia, right? I was like, oh, what happened last time? He's like, oh, a little misunderstanding. <laughs> What's a little misunderstanding? Like a bad, like your customer, I'm thinking deals, right? I'm thinking like your customer didn't like your pricing, whatever it is. And he's like, I was taking pictures of this building. Police came by and picked me up, me and my buddy up, threw us in jail. And they called us spies and they took all our stuff. And I was like, uh-huh. <laughs> and he's like, yeah. And there's this guy, you know, this like local chained up in the bench next to us. And they came in and beat the heck out of him, pretty much killed him. So at that point, we realized like we really need to figure out a way to get the heck out of here. So we saw a priest and we told him, hey, I'm Larry Grober. Go to the U.S. Embassy and let him know like we're here and I can, you know, come bail us out. He's like, yeah, and about, you know. 12, 14 hours later, you know, U.S. guy came in and he kind of bailed us out. But you know, it was a really misunderstanding. I said, what do you, what do you do for a living? <laughs> right? You know yeah. what I mean? I'm like, yeah. what are you talking about? Did, did you got thrown in jail for being a spy for taking pictures. He's like, yeah, we're just taking pictures of a building where we're going to put these, you know, these radios and, and antennas and stuff. I said, something's, not, something's missing, right? Well, he'll tell me another story where Africa was like his fun stories. I think it was Zimbabwe. There was a uh, a curfew. He's like, yeah, I had a long meeting. Kind of went past curfew. So I got in my car and drove through. And I saw a checkpoint. I realized probably not a good idea to stop a checkpoint. So I kind of punched through it and shot a couple rounds of AK at me. And then they chased me. (laughs) But luckily, there was another guy that did the same thing. They went after him. And I'm like, 
What are you talking about, yeah. dude? Yeah. There's no way. Your stories don't fit. And then the kicker was when I was, uh, and they moved to North Carolina and I went into the attic, just like my boxes. And this is kind of funny. That's why I like the idea of boxes and learning the story of your dad or grandpa. And I went into um, one of the boxes looking for something and I found an identification card from a Moroccan gendarmerie, right? The police, like national mm-hmm. police up there. And it's my dad's face with a different name on it. And I took that, brought it to him. I was like, what is this? He's like, huh. Hey, it's an ID card. I was like, no, I get that, dude. <laughs> Why do you have a different name? Oh, yeah, you know, didn't like my name. So to get on base, he just gave me this card. I'm like, Larry Groberg is a pretty like easy name, dude. Like, why do you have like a pretty much French name? He's like, oh, it's just, it just made it a lot easier. I said, nah, man. And so when I went into that world myself <laughs> yeah. after the army, I realized like this guy was doing a little bit more than what? And to this day, he won't tell me the truth. I'll figure it out one day. You'll figure it out eventually. That's con- man, that's conviction though. That's right? amazing though. Just holding He's it. old school, dude. That's legit. You got to respect that. No, hell no. I want him to tell me the truth. <laughs> Tell me all your secrets. He just laughs. He just smiles. He smirks. Either <laughs> and that makes it worse. This is just total coincidence and it really there's our stories, right? We have time for one more. This is the best yeah, one. Yeah, hell yeah. This is the best one. My mom to this day is incredibly still mad at him because they were going to Luxembourg, from Paris to Luxembourg mm-hmm. for a, a long weekend. This is, you can't make this shit up. She packed her bag, he packed his bag, and they went on a train, Right. And my mom went to the bathroom on the train, TGV, and she took her bag with her. Like it was like a pretty sizable bag, right? Because she was doing, she like freshened up, doing her makeup yeah. again. She left the bag in the bathroom, forgot about it. Came back, sat down. Like ten minutes later, my dad's like, "Where's your bag?" And she's like, "Oh crap, I left it in the bathroom." Luckily, she went to the bathroom and still there. Pe- picked up the bag, right? It's like complete luck. Yeah. They go through customs, right? She goes through customs, no issues. He goes through customs, no issues. They arrive at the hotel. He's like, can I see your bag for a second? And so she grabs the bag. And then in there, he somehow put it, he put it at $100,000 in cash. And he took it out. And she's like, what in the fuck is this, Larry? And he's like, oh, we're doing this business deal and we have to pay off this third party guy. And she's like, no, that's great. I don't care about your illegal activities or whatever the hell you're doing. Why is it in my bag? Well, he's like, well, I can't cross customs with $100,000 without declaring it. And she's like, why is it in my bag? Oh, you would let me? <laughs> he's like, they're going to check my bag more than likely. They wouldn't check yours. She's like, why didn't you tell me? He's like, then you would have been nervous. And if you would have been nervous going through customs, they would have checked your bag. <laughs> and I'm like, dude, you're bro. killing me now, bro. Like, you are... It's, either you did some illegal real stuff, like you were like a Yeah, drunk. but really all I did was sell antenna towers for Motorola. Yeah. Okay. That's awesome. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah I mean, yeah. that's common practice, right? I like Larry. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. When Dr. Sabah and I decided to do a skincare line together, he said to me, we are going to give women meaningful beauty. And I said, that's exactly right. We want to give women meaningful beauty, which means each and every product is meaningful. It has a a reason to exist. It's efficacious. You're going to get results. And then you just go out and live your life. Meaningful beauty. Confidence is beautiful. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. 
Hi, it's Gabby Reese, and this podcast is powered by Laird Superfood, a brand that's truly close to my heart because it was founded in my kitchen by my husband, big wave surfer Laird Hamilton. Today, Laird Superfood boasts an amazing lineup of products, all crafted with the highest quality plant-based ingredients. Think functional mushrooms, real fruits and veggies. What makes us unique? We're committed to using only real ingredients, no artificial and no natural flavors. Two of my absolute favorites are prebiotic daily greens, really great tasting, and we've added some mushrooms to support your gut even a little more. Then there's our instant latte lineup. We've got instant mocha, instant latte, chai. If you want to discover Laird Superfood, you can do it at your local retailer on Amazon or at LairdSuperfood.com. And if you put in the code GABBY2024 on our website, you'll get an exclusive 20% off your first purchase. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. In the final months of World War II, the Nazis began using a rocket-powered bomb. It travelled faster than the speed of sound, which meant you couldn't hear it coming. And it was a cruel, spiteful weapon. Technologically, it was a miracle. But economically and militarily, the V-2 rocket was a total disaster. How did it come into existence? Why were so many of the people it hurt not the people you might expect? And what lessons can we glean from this catastrophic mega-project even today? Join me, Tim Harford, host of the Cautionary Tales podcast for my gripping mini-series on the Nazi V2 rocket, available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So tell us about when you did make that step to join the military. It took couple of years for the French government to renounce my French citizenship. I didn't realize you couldn't be as, you know, pledge allegiance to two different countries and, you know, and get a clearance. Yeah, you know, I didn't know about that stuff. So I went to the French embassy, renounced my French citizenship, took a little bit of time to get that paperwork back, which is probably one of the suckiest part of my life because you really want to do something and you're incapable of doing it because of a piece of paper, right? So I sold voice over IP lines for a sub of Cisco Systems at the time called i Networks. And just waited my time, right? Made a good money. Made over hundred thousand dollars as like a twenty-three-year-old, which wow. is like you unheard know, of. Yeah, yeah, it was just sales, right? And I sold this huge deal right in two thousand eight, two thousand seven, two thousand eight, with the embassy of Kuwait. It was like three million dollars, and that was going to net me like seventy thousand dollars of bonus. And the next day, I got a call from my recruiter to come in because I you see my paperwork back, and now the army was ready to put me through the board so I could go to officer candidate school. And so I went to my job and Michael Bertamini at the time was a, the big boss. And I said, Hey, um, I'm resigning. 
and he's just like, are you serious? Like, you're about to get paid, dude. Like, you're so good at this. Like, you're about to get paid. You know, next month, you're going to get like 35K. And then four months later, you get the other 35K. He's like, that's big money and stuff. And I told him, I was like, dude, I've been waiting for two years for this. I care less about money. I'm 23, 24 years old. Like, money is not my objective. This is what I want to do. So I quit that day. And they were all shocked because, like, no one will not take their money, right? No, of course. And I started training again. You know, I was a Division One athlete before and running track for Maryland, and I needed to get yeah. back into it. And so I started training, and that's what I focused for the next month and a half before I went to boot of just getting, like, into top physical shape. So, Which, thank God that you were an athlete before that because you had an advantage in how to prepare. You knew what you had to do. Yeah, no doubt. That was my full-time job. I did side jobs for a little bit of cash just to, like, pay bills, but, like, I had money anyway, so, you know, saved up. So I did that, and I went to Benning 1 July. It was hot. I was about to say, so you went the best time of year to Georgia where there's no humidity and it's just... It's it's cold. Yeah. yeah, A little chilly. It's tropical. It was the best decision I've ever made. Making from over $100,000, making $27,000. You did it for the paycheck, obviously. 100%. I didn't even get paid for the first three months. I didn't know. I did not get paid at all during basic training. There was a problem in the pay system with my name. A glitch in the system. Imagine that. But, you know, I learned something valuable, though, in um, basic. First of all, people hated me in basic. I was the assistant PG, mm. and they hated me because every morning I got up at 0400, whenever I wake up was. Obviously, I didn't sleep under the covers. No one did, really, but some did. They were idiots. But I was fired up every day. Because every day, I would get out of bed, and I would just be like, ready to roll. And I would tell these guys, like, get, get your shit ready. Let's go faster and stuff. And I would hold them to the standard. Because I told them... Every day is a day closer to becoming a U.S. Army soldier. Yeah. And that is real shit. People are fucking dying. This is not a joke. This is not summer camp. This is what real. What year is this? You- 2008. 2008. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I so mean, we're you know, in the... Yeah, in the, and you, you're going through like probably one of the worst, other than 0304, right? Mm-hmm. Five in Iraq. Yeah. Yeah, this is like becoming like really bad, specifically in Afghanistan. Yeah. And so... And I was telling them, I had friends deployed, and I said, this is real shit. Like, every day, we need to embrace this and learn from what they're teaching us because this is the honor we're going to get. And people just thought I was, I just ran from the water cooler too much. And so things that I did in basic training, I didn't tell anyone I was going to basic training, none of my friends. One guy, Matt Sanders, dropped me off at MEPS, and that's the only guy I knew. A couple of reasons I did that is, one, I didn't want letters. Uh, I wanted to focus 100% on the job. Second, I sure as hell did not want my friends to know where I was at, so they would send me these dolls and stuff. Stuff to get, yeah, in, get you in trouble. Yeah, yeah get in trouble. So I was like, you know, part of that. But I really wanted to focus. Third is I, I'm a track athlete, and the Olympics were happening that year, in that summer. I didn't want to look forward to a letter with, like, times and things like that. I wanted to just be 100% focused on this trade. And so I did that. And believe it or not, that created some... The drill instructors, after a while, caught on. And then, you know, how you do mail call and they throw your mail and stuff. And people oh, yeah, say, but yeah. never got anything. In front of God and everybody. Right, exactly. It's never oh, a yeah. one-on-one, like, yeah. hey, your grandma hey, recruit, here's your mail. Yeah. Ever. It's in front of yeah. everyone. And then one day they realized, probably week six or seven, like at the end, they're like, Roberg, you never, no one likes you. <laughs> like, you fucking, like, I think everyone here hates you because you're so mean to them. The only reason why they bear with you because you win every like a physical competition here, and you know that means the team wins. They don't like you here, and it shows I don't like you out of here because you never got a letter. And I was like, yo. So guys started coming to me at night and giving me their letters to no. read. 
It was so funny. <laughs> so I actually you enjoyed know what that. Worked though. It worked. It it worked in like you got empathy. Yeah, I didn't care about empathy. I yeah, I know you didn't care about that crap. But I, you got to read all this. All the I can only imagine. So we had. And I, then, I can only imagine. But when I graduated and then I went to OCS and infantry school, airborne school and ranger school. Tell you what, those 15, 16 months were some of the hardest but best moments of my life because every day I got closer to my objective. Yeah, that you've been waiting for a lot longer than most have to wait. My whole life almost, it felt like. Yeah. Let's go ahead and talk about your deployment to Afghanistan in 2012. So in 2012, my my second deployment in Afghanistan, I was in charge of the security detail for, at the time, Colonel Mingus, who is now the Chairman of Joint Chiefs' Act Director. And the mission was simple. I, I selected six highly qualified individuals across the brigade to run a personal security detail for him and Commander Hamager Griffin. And we were going to protect them in Afghanistan and the eastern part of Afghanistan. We were based in Nangarhar at the, in Jalalabad, mm-hmm. Jabad. And we had 45 different outstations across six provinces. So outstations meaning U.S. or friendly bases that were part of his ecosystem. And so... The job was simple. It was really awesome. I would coordinate his routes. I would coordinate with the receiving units, his intent, his arrival. And then I would just work with the birds to get all the birds scheduled. And then when we got on the ground, I would protect them. So if we went outside a wire, I would always ask for 12 to 15 soldiers at a minimum to escort us because my team was designed to protect him and the Sergeant Major. So meaning if we went outside a wire and we got hit, what our job was to do was to collapse on these folks on these leaders, in essence, like they really put them to the ground and shield them with our bodies and then exfil them away from the threat and having that element of 12 or 15 soldiers, really a squad platoon. That's like the half 360. Platoon. That's the security yeah. detail. Yeah, to fight yeah. the fight so we can successfully exfil. Right. And so that was it. And it was awesome. I got to see Afghanistan in ways that I never saw my first tour. I got to sit in meetings with ambassadors, with politicians, with General Mayville, all the top military officials, foreign partners. I got to sit in uh, tri-state border meetings with Pakistanis, wow, Afghans, and you know Indians, right? I bet um, that was interesting. Oh, it was amazing. Like I got to really learn about the mission of Afghanistan from a very high level, like in terms of our leadership, and it gave me a better perspective of what the heck we we're doing over there versus what I learned when I was a regular infantry officer in with our platoon in '09. And the job wasn't particularly dangerous. We just knew that, you know, it's Afghanistan and shit can go crazy at any moment. Yeah. We had a couple of close calls, a V-Bid, Finley Shields, a vehicle, a born IED. So they put a bunch of explosive, blew it through the gate, got into a nice little firefight there. That was fun. I didn't do anything. I watched it. So that's a little sad, but it was still fun. Another one, they put an IED right before we landed our aircrafts. Thank God, like local Afghan National Army guy on that base was noticed it. So... Then we went through yeah. video cameras, identified that the other Afghan National Army guy had put it there, so they get rid of him. Had dinner or lunch at Bin Laden's uh, house wow. in you know Nangarhar. It was crazy, like amazing. And then, of course, did the whole Perun, northern Afghanistan piece where there was no roads, nothing. Got to do some advanced patrolling with uh, the State Department and CIA and some other folks to bring the ambassador up there, Olson, to have a, you know, a meeting with the provincial governor. And lastly, I'll say this, every governor that I met, it ties back to the United States. So the guy in Peru yeah. would find a way to get out of Peru 
what a bumping a ride with us or like, you know, taking a two week journey through the woods and stuff. So he could go back to Kabul and fly out back to the United States so he can run his uh, taxi driving service in New York. <laughs> wow. Right? Come on. Yeah. No, they like, all have they all have investments in the US. They have friends that live here. I'm talking about like it's such a corrupt business over there, but they're all back. They have connections. They live here, here half the fucking time, right? You know, a lot of them. So it's absolutely fascinating when I learn about the ends. So I'm here in Peru and no one is near, right? Das Mohammed, one of our number one high value target is like living across the freaking mountain right there. And this guy, you know, his cousin for the governor comes to talk to me in English like we're talking right now. Hey man, how y'all doing? I was like, oh my God, hi, who are you? He's like, oh, I live here and I go to New York and come back. I said, what do you ever come back here for? <laughs> yeah. like, what is wrong with you? He's like, oh, business, you know, family. And it's like, I was so blessed I had the opportunity to do this tour. But on August 8, 2012, we were going to actually the Southern Kunar Provincial Governor's security meeting happened every Wednesday at 10, 10 a.m. And on August 8, 2012, we landed at Combat Outpost Fires, which was about a thousand meters away from the governor's compound. So it's a military base. And the escort I had requested the night before was not there. So it was one of those SFAT leaders from the 101st. So at the time in 2012, we did this program where members who were not infantry people would like go through this training program and come in and train. They'd be assigned to a, a unit there, like us, it was 4-5-D, and they'd just spend time with just the Afghans, right, National Army and stuff, and just train them. Just like Special Forces mission, right, but they wanted to go to more a conventional, grander scale. And so these folks were there, and this guy was one of them, and he was in charge of that base. And he didn't have an infantry background, so when I asked him for that escort, he was like, no, I'll walk the route, you know, prior, and then we're clear I was like, dude, no, you want to walk it with me, man. Like, and anyway, he decided to not listen and he did that. But guess what he did? You all, you all understand this very clearly. He walked it, he cleared it, and he left. You went to the governor's compound. It's a hot route again. No doubt. They just stayed in their fucking house. Yeah. They just watched them. Yeah. So he took all of my soldiers, all the soldiers I requested, and he left. And so when we landed, I saw no one. My heart started beating a little bit faster. My spidey sense started kicking up. You know, I got two brigade commanders, three battalion commanders, an Afghan oh, generals, two GS-15 State Department guys with me. Oh I got two uh, command sergeant majors and two majors, like, you know, brigade level. There's a lot me. of brass. That's a it's, lot of it's brass. It's a ton of brass. I mean, you have a hundred, you have Colonel Warraff, you have a brigade commander for 101st. You have Colonel Mingus, brigade commander for 45D. You have a bunch of battalion commanders. And the reason why they were all there with us is the night before he had an uh, all-hands leadership meeting in Jalalabad. So mm. while Raf wanted to go with him, but some of these battalion commanders were going to bump a ride, go to the security meeting, and then go back to their bases. So then I had six security for all that. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but like I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like, why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? That's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty. Beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. 
Hi, it's Gabby Reese, and this podcast is powered by Laird Superfood, a brand that's truly close to my heart because it was founded in my kitchen by my husband, big wave surfer Laird Hamilton. Today, Laird Superfood boasts an amazing lineup of products, all crafted with the highest quality plant-based ingredients. Think functional mushrooms, real fruits and veggies. What makes us unique? We're committed to using only real ingredients, no artificial and no natural flavors. Two of my absolute favorites are prebiotic daily greens, really great tasting, and we've added some mushrooms to support your gut even a little more. Then there's our instant latte lineup. We've got instant mocha, instant latte, chai. If you want to discover Laird Superfood, you can do it at your local retailer on Amazon or at LairdSuperfood.com. And if you put in the code GABBY2024 on our website, you'll get an exclusive 20% off your first purchase. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Attention all you 20-somethings out there. Are you tired of pretending like you have it all figured out? Well, guess what? You're not alone. Get ready to embrace the chaos with the premiere of the fourth season of Crying in Public. Join me, your host, Sydney Winter, as I take the mic solo for the very first time. I'm here to share the good, the bad, and the downright awkward of navigating this crazy thing we call girlhood. Consider this your go-to guide for surviving your 20s with style and grace. Well, for the most part. From dissecting mysteries of modern dating to surviving and thriving in a daily grind of adulting, crying in public covers it all. And then some. So grab your headphones, we're about to get real, raw, and a little ridiculous. And let's face it, life's too short to pretend like we've got it all together. It's time to embrace the chaos. So don't miss out on the laughs, the tears, and the inevitable existential crisis. Listen to the new season of Crying in Public on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What I immediately did is freaked out internally, right? right? Took a deep breath. This is all happens like within four seconds. And said, what the hell do I do now? So I saw my platoon starting and I said, Brent, get the translator and see the Afghan National Army guys smoking cigarettes by the gate. Get all. Tell this translator they're all coming with us. And then I sprinted towards the base and I went to the three places you go look for soldiers, right? Maybe there's four, but three. I went to the hooches. I went to see they were asleep, you know, where they're sleeping, their barracks, whatever, makeshift barracks. I went to the chow hall and I went to the gym. Yeah. Right. The only other place is the latrine. So, right, the shitters. And I found two guys. One of them was a soldier, former soldier of mine, Sergeant O'Brien, who was sleeping, told him to get the heck out. He's come with me, put on his gear really quickly. And then the other one was a KBR type of fucking American contractor. Oh, okay. And I was like, you have a weapon? He's like, yeah. I was like, I don't know how. I was like, you're coming with us too. So to this day, he's probably like, holy crap. I don't even know his name, nothing about this guy. Wow. Seriously? Yeah, yeah. I, I just brought him with me. And so wow. I had the Afghan National Army guys get up front. The game plan was to for them to be up front, about 10 feet in front of us because I didn't trust them, but also to appear bigger. 
Yeah. Right. right. And then I changed the configuration of our diamonds. So the way we work, we would do a diamond and I would put my principles inside this diamond. And I was always a rear of the diamond because I wanted the responsibility, like shit, all hell breaks loose to grab the boss first and put him to the ground. Yeah. And then or take him to safety. This time I wanted to be at the spear of it, you know, so to have better visibility. Mm-hmm. And I put a, my pre FCO chart, 21 year old kid behind me, or in my, my position. And I told him, if something happens, whatever direction I go, I need you to take the boss, go the opposite direction. He's like, Roger that. And then we drove on, we went out there. And, you know, atmospherics were shitty. And it's quiet. Toyota Corolla started following us. It's an interesting place because it's off the water, right? Off the river. We were the last point, right? Of mm-hmm. that, that base before you hit the water. It's a one road. Yeah, so and then you're cut so off. So that you have water on the left. There's nowhere else have, to go. There's nowhere else to go. So like the fact that after like five minutes of walking on this 1,100, 10,000, you know, 1,000 meter movement, there's a car that's following us. So on the radio, I was like, yo. Yeah. Get this guy like off our ass. But in the diamond, I put all the officers. I wanted to put Sergeant Major Griffin in there too. He told me, hell no. I was like, there's way too many dumbass uh, leaders here. I was like, I have the most infantry experience as everybody here. I'm going to be in the rear. We're doing rear security. And I was like, this is awesome. Yeah. Right? Yeah. This guy's a warrior. So I was like, that's, I'm covered in my rear. So I don't have to worry about that. So I felt like I got an extra guy right there. But long story short, 700 meters into a movement, right before you cross a bridge. And then as soon as you cross a bridge, you take these stairs you by the governor's compound. You go a couple hundred meters in your governor's compound. They came at us with motorcycles. At the entrance of the bridge, there's houses to our left, right around the water. And then there was on the right side was the police academy, right? For the Afghan National Police Academy. What they were doing is suicide bombers waited inside those houses. And they initiated their ambush by creating a diversion with motorcycles coming mm, directly at us. Yeah. Luckily, the Afghan National Army point guy did a really good job of identifying the motorcycles early on that he like starts screaming and raises, you know, rifle and starts screaming in Dari, which literally forced the bike to fall. Like those guys to fall off the bike and they started running. So he started chasing them. But that created enough of the diversion to allow the guys, yeah. the first guy to come out. So by the time I realized that he was out, like he was about 40 feet from us. So I turned around, looked at him, couldn't see a weapon. I was kind of confused. I was like, what is this guy doing? Where did he come from? Yeah. So as he made his movement towards us, I sprinted towards him, yelled a couple of names and stuff. And when I got to him, I hit him with my rifle Mm -hmm. across the chest hard. And when I hit him, I realized like I just hit something. Yeah. That wasn't flush. Right. So I was like, what? Mm -hmm. So I let go of my rifle. It was slung to my kit. And I grabbed him by what I realized at that point was a suicide vest. It's a really odd feeling. You grab a man, you know, that you're being the best. So at that point, all I could think about was I got to get him away from everybody as quickly as possible, as far away as possible. Yep. He's about to kill my friends. Yep. And you don't think about yourself. You just think about doing your job. Yep. And I drove him and threw him. And as I threw him, I saw Mahoney follow me into it. He, he received a silver star for this. He landed on his chest and he detonated. And everything went black. I just saw the dead mystery come out of his hand. That's the last memory. And then everything went black. And I woke up a couple minutes later, 20 feet away, with my foot facing me, fibula out, blood everywhere, right? My precision sergeant found me and dragged me into a ditch. And my medic saved my life. He applied a tourniquet to my leg and kept me awake and things like that. 
But the first thing I asked was, what's the status of Marine Warfare 6 and Marine Warfare 7? What's the status of the Colonel and the Sergeant Major? And they say, Marine Warfare 6 is fine. You know why he's fine? Because my fucking PFC, CG saw me running towards the guy, grabbed him and went the other, way, the other way. way. Wow. Think Did exactly what you told him to 100%. do. 100%. And the boss had a concussion is about it. Marine Warfare 7, the guy that I was telling you about, was like, I got real security. He died. Because when I tackled this guy and he landed on his chest, the ball bearings, the concussion of the blast threw me. Yeah. And it shaved off a piece of my leg with the, you know, but the majority of ball bearings went the complete other direction. Wow. 30 feet away from the blast is where he, it wiped out everybody. And he wiped out Command Sergeant Griffin, Major Gray, Major Kennedy, and Reggae Abdelfata, USAID guy with State Department. And so when they told me that my War 7 didn't make it, I told him to get me out of this ditch and take me to him. And they were like trying to drag me. I was like, I got one good leg. You know what I mean? I can hop. So I was yeah. you know, holding on to hopping. And I had my pistol in my hand this whole time. Right? Because when I got when I woke up, I couldn't find my rifle. So I took my pistol. I didn't know if I was getting ambushed, whatever. And the local populace started to congregate towards the blast. Yeah, right. And I saw my friends dead. You know? And my heart like kind of sunk. But what I saw next was something I'll never forget was a younger kid, this guy, smiling. A local? Yeah. Okay. And I almost shot him. Yep. I mean, I was about to shoot him the fucking yeah. head. And that PFC, Ochar, grabbed my hand and pulled it down. He's like, not worth it, sir. Not worth it. We'll get him eventually. And then they put me in a truck and that was the end of my war. I received the Medal of Honor for that action in 2015 for President Obama. I'll close out with this. Like, I've never been more uncomfortable in my life. It felt more like a fraud in my life than standing on that stage receiving the Medal of Honor. Because you feel like it's the greatest failure I've ever had. I've lost four guys under my command, under my protection, not command, protection. And I wasn't the only one there. Bahoni was there, Brink, Ochart, Secor, Barama, my medic, O'Brien, I lost half a butt cheek that I woke up. I still pissed at me probably this day, you know, from that blast. God knows what happened at KBR, dude. Right? Yeah. I'd love to know. But the reality is that you feel like you're put on this stage and highlighted and called a hero from the world, literally. And nothing that you ever do in the military is about you. So it's about the team. It's never done by yourself. So it's about the team. And so I'm, I was really glad that President Obama took the time to recognize them. But most importantly, I spoke so highly and recognized the World Star families. Yeah. And told them to stand up. So I won't get, you know, that was a big part of it. But I felt like such a fraud getting it and so uncomfortable. As you go on with it, you realize it's a platform to do some good. It does open up a lot of doors. Of course. It does give you, you know, a voice. So it's like, what do you want to do with that? What do you want to make out of that? And to me, I've taken it to be, you know, sort of my mission to make sure that I earn it. But it doesn't mean that I make a living doing off that, right? I went to LinkedIn, Boeing, Microsoft, did all different things because I don't want anyone to ever say, this guy, this is what, he has a house because he's a Medal of Honor recipient. No, fucking, I work for it, dude. You know what? As somebody that knows you, I know a lot of people with the medal. There's a reason I'm not tight with all of them. Yeah. If you weren't what I said earlier, if you weren't a genuine, authentic human being, your ass wouldn't be in that seat. Yeah, I appreciate that. I can't imagine the burden that that medal brings, and I think it's important that our listeners understand 
You know, the metal doesn't define you. It's not who you are. It was a moment in time. And unfortunately, you've been given the burden of representing this country that you fought so hard to fight for that took years to do because of a piece of paper. You know, now you have the burden of representing it the rest of your life. You know, and there's every day you wake up, say you have to do an event at the Metal Bonner Museum, or you, you got to do something where you have to don that metal. Yeah. Right. It's just like every day I wake up and I, you know, I have to put on a leg before I go pee. Yeah. It's that daily reminder of this is just a tool for me to do something to leave this spin and ball of chaos better than I found it. It's just a tool. Yeah. That's, oh man, that's, couldn't agree with you more, but. You know, if that tool and that platform can provide me with an opportunity to help our community and save lives, because that's what we're doing now, yeah. right? You know what I mean? We're losing more folks in suicide. More than uh, ever now. Than ever, and then ever, that we ever lost in, in, in combat. That's the battlefield today. Yeah. And so that's what this the platform allows me to be more of an advocate and just get through doors a little bit faster than I would have ever had the opportunity to before. Still think I would have been able to do stuff, but like, so that's the way I look at it. It's a burden, but I 100% agree with you. It does not define me. Right. I'm a courier of the Medal of Honor recipient. Mel, no human being can be the Medal of Honor. That's how big and important that thing is. Yeah. It's unbelievably powerful and represents the top of our nation in terms of the meaning of beyond the medal. So I'm a courier and hell no, eight seconds of action cannot define me as a human being. Right. You know, I could be a complete shit bag. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's, you know, so, yeah, and and we'll leave it at that. Bro, I, you know how I feel about you. I don't have to, even have to tell you, but I love you, and I, you make this world a better place. Your existence makes this world a better place, and I'm grateful that that day, yeah, selfishly, I'm super grateful you're here. I know that you're making a bigger impact, and, I mean, what we do now is way bigger than what we did then. 100%. I'm grateful to be able to call you brother. That's a that's an honor and privilege, and that has nothing to do with the medal. Well, I mean, that means a lot, you know, Jacob and, and Ashley. I think you guys make a hell of a team doing this. Thank you for opening it up for guys like me to have a voice and share some common thoughts. And my world is my son and my wife. Right? Everything I do is about them. And then if you ask me, my the second piece of that is to make sure that I get to earn it for and say their names to bigger and wider audience. And that's Commissioner Hunter Griffin, Major Gray, Major Kennedy, and Reggie Abdel Fattah, guys that were, you know, really represent the medal. Way more than I do, because they die for our country. It's an honor to be here, and I'm looking forward to your next guest. This is cool shit, man. Florent Groberg, thank you so much for coming and opening up and telling us your story and giving us parental advice and all the things. This was truly the good stuff, and just so great to see you and spend time with you. Thank you so much for listening. If this episode touched you today, please share it and be part of making someone's day better. Put on your badass capes and channel your inner flow and go be great today. And remember, you can't do epic stuff without epic people. Thank you for listening to The Good Stuff. The Good Stuff is executive produced by Ashley Schick, Jacob Schick, Leah Pictures, and Q Code Media. Hosted by Ashley Schick and Jacob Schick. Produced by Nick Casolini and Ryan Countshouse. Post-production supervisor, Will Tindy. Music editing by Will Haywood-Smith. Edited by Mike Robinson.
Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Hi, I'm Gabby Reese. Join me and my husband, big wave surfer, Laird Hamilton, on our journey with Laird Superfood. From our kitchen to yours, we've crafted delicious plant-based creamers, coffee, greens, and so much more using high-quality functional ingredients. Visit LairdSuperfood.com and use the code GABBY2024 for 20% off your first order.